0: Well, I welcome everybody back for the book of James and it's been a fantastic time being able to dig into this book and I got to tell you that at this point I feel I feel pretty bruised. And if you've been here for the beginning of this book till now and you've still come back, well then you probably are a little bruised yourselves cuz James, the way he deals with the people and the way he's teaching is very much like what you would probably expect to find today. It's, a, it's James dealing with people who he sees are struggling, people who he sees is just going through life, facing real life issues, and he is upfront, getting into their lives and, and trying to direct them. And I don't know about you, but all through this lesson, I've had to step back even preparing lessons or hearing somebody else teach them and just kind of take a, a look at my life and say, man, James is really dealing with these issues, and these things are going on in my life, and maybe I should change this, or maybe I should rearrange that, but it's been really interesting. So hopefully you have really enjoyed this lesson and taken to heart some of the direction James has offered here. So this lesson is James chapter 3, 1 through 12, entitled, Small but Powerful. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Masters is probably also going to be better understood for us if we look at it in the term as teachers. So if he's saying here, brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, as soon as I read that I have questions. I'm trying to figure out, well, what is he talking about? Because it appears like he would be trying to discourage us from being teachers of the word. Kind of at first glance, it's like, well, guys, you, if you become a teacher, you're going to be facing greater condemnation. And I don't know about you, but I try to flee from condemnation. I don't want to be caught up in any of that. So if I'm being threatened by James to not teach on the premise that if I do teach, I face greater condemnation, then I would be afraid. I've got to tell you, I would approach teaching in a whole different look, a whole different light. Uh, so we're going to look a little bit at what that does. And you also got to consider from this verse, how does that even coincide with what Jesus taught in Matthew 28, 19? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So It's clear from Jesus' words there that you are to go and to teach. We're going to look at that. Teachers. In Judaism, the most esteemed person is a religious teacher who is called rabbi were my great one. The Jews believed that a man's duty to his rabbi superseded his duty to his parents. So you're talking about an individual in the Jewish society that was looked upon very highly. So if you were a rabbi, if you were a teacher of the scriptures, of the scrolls, and you taught, then people respected you extremely. I mean, you were just the person to look to Everybody, You would have been the superhero or the LeBron James of today's society. So everybody looks to superstars today. Well, they look to rabbis like that in this culture. They truly respected them. So here's how much they respected them. If his parents, they, they wanted him to respect that because his parents could only provide for them physically. And they looked to the rabbi to provide spiritual life. Here's a thought that they, they pull from history. If parents and a rabbi were captured by an enemy, It was the man's duty to ransom his rabbi first. Now, I love Brother Mooney. Well, I'm looking back here at my mom, and I'm just thinking, oh no. If this was the case, I'm sorry, Pastor. My wife is getting ransomed. My mom's getting ransomed. My my family's being ransomed first. So, it's a different way of looking at this when you look into the hearts of the Jews and who James is talking to about being a teacher. When you understand how much this person was respected, it can kind of change our view. If they were both in need of physical provisions, his duty was to tend to the rabbi first. The rabbi didn't change your diapers when you were wetting on yourself. He wasn't taking care of you, feeding you when you were little and couldn't control or do anything for yourself. It was your parents. And yet, in their culture, they looked into this person so highly that they said, okay, if, if they're sick, both of them are sick at the same time, you need to make sure that you make provisions for the rabbi first. So here's what James is dealing with when he says he doesn't want many to try to be teachers or masters. He's looking at the fact that these people he's speaking to are Jews who have been converted, and they have watched the office of the rabbi be completely polluted. Uh, people are moving into this office to become a teacher with improper motives. They want people to look to them and they want to have the power. They want to have the authority. They want to be the person in charge to cast judgment, to micromanage your life. They like the prestige. They like people to worship them, idolize them. And so instead of entering into the office of a teacher for the purpose of reaching somebody's life, for the purpose of being the mouthpiece for God and directing somebody and guiding somebody and helping somebody, they've done it for all these other reasons. They've got involved with it And they've allowed those selfish reasons to be their motivation for becoming a rabbi. When people get motivated by their flesh to be a teacher of the Word, a preacher, or a pastor, it's destructive from the beginning. There's no good that can come out of somebody teaching, even from this good book as the Bible, when their motives are for self-gain, are for themselves. And you say, well, man, you know, I watch, and, and you can look at today's society, and And this is why I just love the book of James because it just flows from history all the way into where we're at today. And it says there are people everywhere that are taking churches to become pastors. Not just TV evangelists. You look at TV evangelists and you start to look at some of these guys and all they care about is money. All they care about is fame. They just want their name to get out there. If you knew the history of some of these people that preach these awesome messages on television and you realize that they've got 40 people working underneath them, to help prepare their messages, to help write their books. And you realize that for them to get into that position, a lot of them walked away from truth, from doctrine that was unchangeable, and put that on the table for financial gain. Is that not true? Lots of them done that. And they say, well, you can't be on our TV broadcast, and you can't preach a message that doesn't align with everybody else's message. But if you want to do that, we can make you rich. You can have millions of viewers. You can have everybody paying attention to you. You can be the person everybody respects. You can have bestsellers on, uh, on every bookshelf, but you're going to have to sacrifice some things. And people are moving into those positions. So now, it's not just those people that are getting rich and famous on television or across the world. You have people taking over churches. People are willing to, people are willing to substitute money for power. So if they can even take over a little church and and move into a little congregation and, and just have control over a little group of people, man, when you feed your ego and you're building that up and you're like, oh, I feel power over this, I feel control over this, and you start to gobble that down. So much that it's not even about having a huge congregation with a bunch of money. You just want to be controlling. You just want your words to go across and to dictate people's lives. These are the kind of things that were taking place back then. Rabbis not interested in the person or the soul of the person. But they were more interested in money, power, status. Today, and even then, James was trying to get across, we need people anointed, preaching and teaching who are led by the Spirit, motivated by saving souls. People that are going out with love, people that are caring. We can speak a million words from the good book and we can talk to people and guide people and, and just show them scripture. And if we're not doing it out of love, you know, today today you see a lot of this. You see a lot of people that say, I'm so tired of how the world's just throwing everything they've got in our face. Church folks, I'm so tired of agendas, of of the homosexual agenda or the blending of the sexes agenda or New Age churches, all these things. I'm just so sick of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to confront them face to face and I'm going to say, look, you don't know what you're talking about. Look at this verse. This means this. This is what you should be doing. Or, or you need to be baptized this way. Or you need to dress this way. And then all of a sudden you've got this book that was meant to change lives and you've perverted it because you don't care if these words enter into somebody's life and help them. All you care about is being right. All you care about is having the truth. Well, what good is your truth if it's not doing what it was intended to do? The words a teacher speaks need to become a hands that reach down into some soul and pull it from the grips of hell. And now those words provoked by love, those type of words, that type of teaching, is what James wants you to be. That's what God created you to be. Now, outside of that, James is saying, I'm telling you, you don't want to be a teacher. If you ain't teaching with these kind of motives... If you're not teaching with this kind of heart behind it, you might as well give it up. Because you want great condemnation. It will fall upon you when you want to build something for your own gain. When you want to exploit people to benefit yourself. Preachers who seek the face of God who are willing to preach His message at all costs. Now here's an all-inclusive struggle. People say, I want to be included in the Gospel. I want to be included in those that are saved. Everybody wants to. It doesn't matter what they teach, what they preach. Give me a message that's all-inclusive. Well, here's your all-inclusive message. For many things, we offend all. Everybody is included in that one. You want to be included? Good. You're a failure when it comes to your tongue. When it comes to your own words, your own mouth, the things you speak, everybody struggles with this, no matter who you are. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. So if you cannot offend in word, let's just look at it this way, then you're perfect. Then you're not offending in word, you're not offending in action, you got complete control. No one has escaped this battle. James includes himself in this battle. This is another reason why I love his teaching. He's, he's hitting us extremely hard and in the face trying to guide our lives and help us to live the way we should. These are people that have just been converted. They're all spread abroad. And James is still pushing them as hard as he can. You know, some folks say, you don't want to preach that because new converts aren't ready for that. You don't want to to mention anything about this or about that because they've just experienced this. They've just received the Holy Ghost. Don't mention that. But the Word of God can be taught in such a way, everything in it can be taught in an appropriate way that's going to help somebody. And so James says, I'm not going to just hold back here. I realize you're just converted. I realize you're on the run. But I want to give you this whole message. I don't want you out there living on the run, living backwards, and not even being close to God. Let me direct you so that you are close to Him, even though you're a newcomer. Don't be afraid to share those things that will change somebody's life because you think you might push them away. I tell you what, when somebody looks back over their life and they realize that somebody was preaching truth or they get a hold of it themselves, they're going to look back and they're going to say, who told me this stuff? Who taught me the truth? I had a friend of mine whose mom um, allowed us to come over. We could, it was, it was my mom probably didn't even want to hear this. It was, um, my friend's mother would allow us to party at his house at a young age. So I'm 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And, and anybody could come over and you could get high there. You could drink there. You could party there. She would let you do that. You could bring your girlfriend, spend the night there. She would call your mom. She would lie for you. She would do anything. And we thought that was the coolest person ever. Everybody was like, man, Sean's got the best parents, the coolest parents. But now, now that I'm where I'm at and I know what God expects of me, I look back and I despise that. There's nothing good about that. And that's how it's going to happen when a new saint or a new convert looks back and they're far into their walk. They're going to say, man, how come no one ever told me about this? How come no one ever shared this to me? So somebody gets in church and they they get baptized and you're like, man, I don't want to tell them about the, the experience of receiving the Holy Ghost because it might just push them away. But man, what you are robbing of somebody for them not to experience the power of God living inside your heart, redirecting, reshaping who you are. Don't be afraid to share those things. There are things God has put in our hands to hand out. Our words we are speaking are making a difference if we let them. There's some things we've got to teach, no matter who they are. But you do that out of love. You approach somebody out of love, and you'll be amazed at the results. You do it in the right stance. So controlling the tongue, slip of the tongue might be an off-color joke. Now that's pretty obvious when, when somebody tells a joke they shouldn't tell, that they was not really in the right, or there wasn't a good feeling about a prejudiced joke, or a dirty joke, or maybe a joke that had profanity in it. Or profanity due to anger. I mean, man, when you're when you're hammering away, brother Fridley, you've been in construction. I hope you've never fallen into this, but smashed your finger with the hammer, and what for? The first you get angry. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Good. Good. I was worried. I thought, is he going to say something good? Thank you, brother Fridley. So those are two things that are pretty evident that you don't have control of your tongue, right? I mean, if you you curse, you tell an off-color joke, you're kind of understanding. But here's some things that aren't so obvious. Gossip. And gossip destroys. Talking about somebody hurts them. Talking about people behind their back doesn't build friendships, doesn't build relationships. You know, for some reason, when people, people, just people, when they get involved in big groups, not just church groups, any groups, high school cliques, anything, sports teams, you automatically feel like you've got this passage of to go ahead and just gossip. You're like, every time you get together, you've got to gossip. Every time you talk, and people act like it's all women. It's not all women. Men do the same thing. Men get together, and before you know it, you're talking about somebody. Here's the problem. You do it so much, you don't even realize it's gossip anymore. You just start talking about people, and you start talking about someone's life, and and you don't even realize it hurts until it gets back to that person. And then that person who thought of you as a friend or thought of you as a a fellow fellow brother or a fellow sister in the church is devastated that you would speak about them. Gossip. We've got to guard against gossip. Half-truth. Sister Grover in here? Brother Grover's in here? He's in sales? You guys know that's got to be the biggest struggle as a salesperson. Half-truth. Brother Tyus is a lawyer? (laughs) 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 <laughs> Brother Hauk's Brother in sales. When you are in those positions, this is the thing that you guard against the most, at least in my opinion, in being in sales. Because you're constantly trying to convince somebody of something, and you realize the words you say can either shut them off or turn them on. So how you approach it, how you present it makes the difference. So it's easy for you just to present half the truth, and if they don't ask, you don't tell. The don't ask, don't tell rule here in sales. But it's not true. This is one you got to look a little deeper in yourself to find out. It's not as easy as a cuss word or an off-color joke to catch yourself having this trouble. Half-truths, try to avoid them. Slick talkers. Now, see, I'm a little bit... I have less mercy for slick talkers than just about anybody because I come from a background of slick talkers. So everybody's trying to hustle. Everybody's trying to get you for something. Everybody's trying to rip you off, scam you. Everybody's trying to flirt with your girlfriend flirt with your wife. So, slick talkers are people that come in and they just, they just talk super slick. They're just, they're just, if, you feel, if you talk to somebody long enough and you feel just completely buttered up by the time you walk away from that conversation, chances are you're just talking to a slick talker. I mean, now, if you come broken and you're talking to a minister and he's trying to guide you in the Word, that's one thing. But when you're out and about and you meet somebody and they just start buttering you up right away and it just keeps pouring on and keeps pouring on, those kind of people you really want to avoid. You don't want to be stuck, surrounded by somebody. Granted, it feels good for a minute, but I promise you, what they're looking for in the end is only going to hurt you. Whether it be to get a hold of your money, whether it be to get a hold of something that you own, whatever it is, they want to take something from you. Slick talkers and people like that, they're in it for themselves. Avoid people like that. You avoid enough people like that, they'll start to learn that slick talking is not the way to be. Hopefully they'll change. Hopefully they'll understand. The constant battle. Moses spoke rashly with his lips, we hear in, Psalms 106 and, and reading through the Old Testament many times when he did so. Peter, denied knowing the Lord to the extent of cursing and denying Him, was just with Him and now is separated from Him and he's on his own and Jesus predicted it and he would get so frustrated and so mad and this is Peter who we all recognize more than anything as being the person that preached the message on the day of Pentecost, the one that got the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But here's Peter dealing with his tongue and and trying to control it, he is just denying to know him. To the point of cursing full anger. Like, you just picture this, it would be like just somebody accusing you and you're getting so frustrated you just pick the chair up and just smash it against the wall and just start cursing, flying out your mouth and you're just like, I told you I don't know him. That's the kind of anger that was in Peter that was flowing out as he was denying for the third time that he even knew Christ. People deal with this. Well, James isn't just hitting and picking on us. James is saying, listen, this is real life. You know what James would probably throw in this whole lesson? Uh, if he was going to give a whole lesson of things that are destroying in his time. See, back then you had just your tongue to control. Now there's so much more things with the internet and with visual images and with all these things that he could have just added greatly to this list. But we have the tongue he's dealing with right now. And he's saying, man, everybody's facing that. Everybody." Every Christian has a problem that centers around the words that fall from his lips. The great, the near great, the not so great. It doesn't matter who you are. Your first time in church or you've been here for 30 years. You are always going to be dealing with this and trying to conquer this. A true sign of Christian maturity is the ability of the Christian to control his tongue. You want to know how far you've come? Well, can you be quiet? Can you just not say something? I mean, it's like I naturally have a big mouth myself. And so I kind of surround myself by other people that naturally have big mouths. So if you're a friend of mine. <laughs> but I surround myself with people that have big mouths that speak good things. So not people that tear down, not people that destroy. But when you are a Christian and you're walking through this life, you start to learn that people are going to say stuff to you that you don't like, that you don't appreciate. People might do something to you that you don't like and you don't appreciate. How you respond verbally. We've already dealt with the actions and faith without works is dead, but now we're talking about how you communicate, what you say. What you say is important. So how you respond to that person is very critical to really revealing your heart and who you are in Christ. James 1.19, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. So, yes, controlling your tongue sometimes means not to use it at all. It means just to sit back and to be quiet, not to respond. You don't have to have the last word. You got, you got friends like that. We we talk like that. You got friends like that. Is this you? This is what you gotta think about when you're doing this. James is like, look in the mirror. Is this you guys? Juan, is this you? Can you be quiet? Can you not have the last word? Can you not pretend like it is the cool Christian thing to do to have to tell everybody how you feel? Let everybody know what you're thinking. Such a great weapon. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm. Whithersoever the governor. Listed. How can something so small and seemingly insignificant be such a weapon of power? You know, as people, we look at things and we're like, look how small that is. Well, especially back in this day. Today, it's a little different because we have microchips and things that are tiny enough that you can't even see them, and they have extreme power. But back then, they would have understood real well that these little itty-bitty items, how can they be so powerful? Well, God often uses what seems to be an insignificant item. Maybe small in man's sight to reveal His might and His glory. Look at the children of Israel and how small the nation they were. For them to rise up and conquer the way that they conquered was to let everybody know that God's hand was upon them. There was no accomplishing what they accomplished without the intervention of God Himself. Gideon's army, God says, No, I don't want you going into this battle with all these troops. I want you to pull away. And he strips away and strips away until just a small number Goes to battle against massive armies, and they conquer, and so that only one can receive glory. People like you and me, small. We sometimes think of ourselves so insignificant. This is the greatest mistake I think that, that Christians make is they they say, "Who am I?" We do the Moses thing, and we say, "How could I be used of you, God?" is just one person. I'm so insignificant. I don't have any speaking capabilities. I can't sing. I can't play. God, I just don't have anything that you could use. And God says, okay, now you're right where I need you to be. Now you know that when something happens miraculously, I did it and not you. Now you know that this little itty bitty thing that would seem to have no power or could be worthless is doing great things and you know it's not you. It's me. He's always doing that. He always wants the glory. He always wants to be seen as the purpose which things are being done. But he uses people like you and me. A bit and a rudder from the standpoint of size are nothing. Yet it's great importance to a horseman. He uses that to control the horse, to guide the horse. He attaches his reins to it and, and he knows when he's riding this horse that he can go full speed and he can start to pull back and this bit will, will pull on the horse's mouth and it will cause him to slow down. Or he could pull one direction and it will cause the horse to turn. But he knows that this small bit in the horse's mouth gives him control of where he's going. It guides who he is just like the rudder of the helm of the ship where the captain or the person driving this great ship can control it or turn it. It could be fierce winds, and it could take hours for a fierce wind to turn a massive ship, but you could do it in just moments with the control of a little rudder. What the bit is to the horse and the rudder is to the ship, the tongue is to the character and the person, personality of the Christian. So you think, how important is it what I say? How important is my tongue, the words that are flying out of my mouth? Is it really so significant? And he's saying, oh, it's significant. It's significant enough that I'm comparing your little tongue to the bit in a horse's mouth that could mean life or death for that horse rider. Full speed, not being able to control it, could easily wipe them out. All the passengers on some great ship and not being able to control it with that little rudder, destruction could come about. But when you put the right things is in control, and you get a hold of that rudder and you put somebody behind it that knows what they're doing, then you can guide that ship to safety. You can slow that horse down. You can turn that horse any way you need. And when you start to speak things that are positive, godly things, things that are encouraging, and you allow your words to be formed from a heart that is just filled with gladness from God saving your soul, then you start to speak things that are controlling your life and leading you in a good direction. The power to what? Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth! And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. We are surrounded by combustibles. Things that all it takes is a little spark and they explode. Combustibles that Christians are surrounded by are people, souls. Everywhere you turn, you're going to meet a person. Everywhere you look, there's going to be a soul. Somebody either that knows God, doesn't know God, or knew Him and walked away from Him, but you're constantly the spark going through society, going through life, and you're just putting off kindling that can cause a massive fire in the soul or the heart of another person. So combustibles are everywhere. So man, once again, how important is it for what I'm saying or what I'm talking about. What can my tongue actually do? Well, if it is used in an inappropriate way, not correctly, it destroys and cannot be controlled. It ultimately consumes you. You know when you start to feel good sometimes? Hopefully no one's done this in a long time, but you get down and out or somebody makes fun of you and you just you say one smart elk remark back to them. They say something off-color to you and you say something back and now you feel good because you've kind of gotten a little bit a little jab back at them, starts to feel a little relief from that. It's not a good relief, that's a bad relief, that's a false feeling. But still, we find ourselves feeling that sometimes. And that kind of spark, when you put that into a community or into a group of people that are just ready to explode. See, so you catch that? These people we are contacting are ready to explode. People we're meeting in through our lives, they're just there, sitting there. And as the fire comes through, they're going to explode either in a negative or a positive way. They're going to like what you have to say or they're not going to like it. And all it comes back to is, are you speaking words that are creating the right spark or the wrong spark? And at the end of the day, if you're creating the wrong spark and you're tearing people down, you're hurting people, not even necessarily tearing them down and hurting them in negative ways. If you're sharing the word out of a negative uh, prompting that you just want to be right and you just want to shove it in their face, it's just as guilty as making fun of them or tearing them down. He wants you to do all of this out of love. Speak with a heart of love. It ultimately consumes you. You don't get to, to tear people down and break them down and get to the end of the line and God says, okay, well you did good. You tore everybody else down, but you did good. Pass on through. You don't get the free pass. It consumes you as well. It's a fire that cannot be controlled. This is the use of the tongue. It's hell or its origin is of sin or of hell. This is not a godly thing when you're using it this way. The right word can spark something divinely inspired. So we've got all this context from James and all these thoughts about how you can tear down, destroy, watch what you say. But man, when you use your tongue in a way to encourage, in a way to bless somebody, lift somebody up, Something else takes place. Now you're creating a spark that God has ordained. And when that ignites and those people around you catch on fire by that spark, you're changing lives. Now God is entering into the heart of another man or another woman and he's able to do a great work all by what you said and how you carried yourself. How we speak is so important. Look what it just says. For the right word, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, by the foolishness of speaking these words to save them that believe. Not just my actions, not just how I'm walking. God, He needs us to speak these things. And that will convince people. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? comes back to hearing it. Speaking it, talking it, saying it. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing. Let us be a people that speaks these things into the lives of those around us. Then Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Jesus, You did miracles. You did all these things. And those are amazing. But where am I going to go besides You? You have the words. You are teaching the things of eternal life our strength and ability. For every kind of beast, of, of birds and of serpents, of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. James is just kind of prepping them for his next, his next lesson. You know, have you ever met somebody, uh, maybe you recognize it down here in some teaching, where they start to build you up. They're starting to pat you on your back. They're complimenting you. But what they're doing is they're just getting you to a safe place to really hit you hard with something you need to grasp. And they know, you know, James has been pretty abrupt so far. And it's probably shaking them a little bit. So now he's just going to get them up. Look, you have tamed all of these things. You've got control over them. God gave you that control. Speaking to their strengths, building them up, but so that he can prepare them for this next thought, your limitations. So you've got this strength and this ability, but now look at your limitations. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, when I read this, it's disheartening to me at first. I'm thinking, what are you talking about, James? You're talking about how powerful the tongue is, how important the tongue is. You're talking about all that it can accomplish, all that it can do, and you're telling me that I can't never control it? I'll never have that ability? Well, then why should we even try if we can't win? And, James, tell us. What makes sense of this for us to work so hard and for this to have such power and you're telling me that we will never be able to do anything with it. No control. of And Jesus looking upon them saith this in Mark, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. So no, you can't, and we can't, I can't, control our tongue. We're not able, we're not powerful enough, we've tamed the animals and we've tamed those things, but this unruly part of our body we cannot control. But James is saying that if you allow God to minister, you allow Him to use you, allow Him to have control over your members is the only way And it's pretty strong, isn't it? You cannot do it on your own. The only way to get it done is for God to move into your life and have control. So now, man, it's tough because now next time I'm slipping up and I say something I shouldn't be saying or I speak in a way that I regret, I've got no one to blame but myself. Juan, you tried to rule that situation. Certainly you did not seek the face of God to speak those words because had you done so, had you turned to Him, had you looked to Him, He would have offered support. He would have gave you the words to speak. He would have calmed your spirit so your mouth wouldn't speak such destroying words. When He is in control, things move the way they should. When we push Him out and we start to allow self-interest and other things lead us and cause us to speak words, we're not going to get anywhere. We don't have the power to tame it. So we know the massive power of this weapon, but it can go both ways. It can be used to tear down, to destroy, or it can be used to build. See, God intended for this to build. He intended this to spread His Word. He intended our voice to be used of Him. And somehow we've allowed the world, Satan, self-desires to enter in and cause our voices to be used for things they ought not be. James is warning against this thing. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men which are made after the similitude of God out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Now see, I feel like here, when I get to here, I feel like James was talking right to my face and he's like, Juan, why are you not catching on? I've explained this in several verses clearly to you, Juan. How come it still isn't making sense? Let me get a little more in your face, Juan. You bless God with that mouth and then you curse men with that mouth. The holiest of holies... And then you go out and you destroy somebody with the same mouth. People used to say, do you kiss your mama with that mouth? That was before my time, but I know it's a good teaching. Do you kiss your mama with that mouth? Do you talk like that and go home and act like you don't talk like that? Do you worship God and then get out of where you think He's looking at you and you tear down and destroy? Do you speak those things? So now James is just saying, look how plain and simple this is. I've explained it and tried to make it in a way you understand as clear as I can. But it boils down to this. If you are speaking praises one moment and tearing down the next moment, friends, you are confused. Get past that. That's not what God is wanting of you. Blessings and cursing, it should not be as simple as that. The emphasis is felt when we're reading this. Here's what I talk about. The great sermon people. The person that can sit in the audience and hear the preacher preach a message that God is trying to pound into your heart and you do nothing with it except get up and pat the preacher on the back and say, great sermon, I appreciate the word. It's a good word. And yet God was trying to deal with you. Did you tune him out so much when he was trying to shape you that you missed that? You didn't catch what he's trying to say? Hard-headed people. We've all been there. I've been there. Where God has tried to deal with me for months to direct me And two months or six months or years later, I finally catch it and I look back and I'm like, God, why didn't I catch on back then? That's what James is saying. Catch this message. You might be hard-headed now, but you need to deal with that hard-headed state of mind because after a hard head comes a hard heart. And so God can shake you pretty easily, hopefully, when you're just in the hard-head state. But once you get a hardened heart, Once you've been turned over to a reprobate mind or turned over to doing things that you want to do and God kind of backs off, man, hard if not impossible to return. So James is like, I'm not trying to tear you down. I want you to know this so that you can be what God wants you to be. Speak things that are encouraging. I love you. That's why I'm teaching this because I don't want you to end up having a hard heart. I don't want you being lost. Let me go ahead and pound on your hard head now to save you from dealing with a hard heart. From bitter to sweet, does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can both sweet water and bitter be produced from the same source? The answer is no. You may find bitter and sweet water near each other, but they do not come from the same place. The word fountain is an image of our heart, or in this case maybe the source of what the heart is being revealed through, and that's our tongue, what we're saying. But here's the key. Grace can make the same mouth that sent forth the bitter once send forth the sweet for the time to come. So if we find ourselves in this place where we've just been using bitter words, we've been saying hurtful things, we've been tearing people down, or we've just been teaching out of false motives, or whatever it is that we've been using our mouthpiece to do that is not to glorify God, he's saying, listen, you're there, but you can be changed. The children of Israel was wandering in the desert, and they come to Marah. The Lord showed them a tree. There was bitter water. They couldn't drink it. He showed them a tree. Cast that tree into the water and it made it drinkable. So God says if you're in this state where you just seem like you can't speak things that are right, wholesome or holy and you've just been lost and caught up in your own words and saying things that are painful, just know that you can come to me and if you come to me, I will do something to change it. I will make you better. You can come to the cross and I will change your life. You can come to the cross and I will wash your sins away. I will make you a new man, just as I did in the Old Testament. They came to me when they could not drink of it. I showed them the way to become new. We come to Christ, and we may be broken. We may be doing things that we brought in from the world or our old past, speaking things that are not right. And God says, just let me get a hold of you. Let me show you the way to change. Do you want to change? Because I've got a way for you. That's what he's saying. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine fig trees or either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. His argument is no tree can bring forth fruit inconsistent with its nature. If you constantly pull in junk into your life, you constantly feed yourself things you shouldn't be feeding yourself, then what do you expect when your mouth opens to come flying out? So that's something we do check ourselves on. Okay, God, I did speak some things that wasn't good, and I know I didn't seek your face for it, but how come they weren't just built in to say something good? Probably because we've just been feeding ourselves something that's not good for our diet. What drives you? Where do you draw strength from? Are you allowing the Word and the Spirit of the Lord to be your single source? If yes, your motives will be pure. His Spirit will lead you. It will show in how you speak, and you will live a life pleasing to God. And that is the conclusion of that lesson. We have this Wednesday our young adult service. Please invite somebody out. Brother Corsi is preaching to us. Brother Fridley is sharing a testimony that is powerful from something that took place at IBC years ago. Powerful. I can't believe he never shared it with me until this last week, and it happened eight years ago. But I appreciate it. It was powerful. It really got a hold of my heart. He's going to share that with us this Wednesday. We are going to have this room right outside if you're open for men to come and pray at 7 o'clock. Please join us. Outside this room over here on the other side will be a room open for women to come and to join for prayer at 7 o'clock. Please be there if you can at all. So Lord, be with us today. Raise our expectations to know that you will do great things in our lives. Help us tonight to have faith when the sick come down to that altar, God, to believe that you will move in a mighty way. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.